this program is made possible by people just like you, and we need your support right now. There's a big fundraiser ending at the end of this month, so please visit the fundraising page at bestofleft.com for details. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Laverne Cox, People Rise Up Radio, Dan Savage, Radio Dispatch, The Trans Advocate, Activism from Best of the Left, and The Current. And a quick note that if you are still fixated on the anatomical specifics of trans people, maybe hearing some stories about what it's actually like to live as a trans person will help you see that there is way more to it than anatomy. My name is Laverne Cox and I'm from Mobile, Alabama. Until recently, I have had a tremendous amount of shame about the bullying I experienced as a child. Um, Whenever um, something would happen and my mother would find out, she would yell at me and say, well, why didn't you fight back? Why, 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 why are you fighting back? And then she would also say, um, what are you doing to make them treat you like that? So I felt like it was my fault. We took the bus to school um, every day. I have, I have a twin brother, and um, the bu- they could, the kids couldn't um, beat us up on the bus um, because the bus driver was sort of watching in the rearview mirror. But we knew that as soon as we got off the bus, we had to take off running, or or um, we could be up. And um, uh, for years, I joked that I was a very fast runner uh, as a child, um, and it was sort of my way of deflecting from how painful it was to sort of feel like. I was always in danger. And up until that point, everyone was telling me that I was a boy. I was eight years old. And I was just, I was convinced that I was a girl. And the therapist told my mom, and she, she yelled at me, that, you know, boys are this way and girls are this way. And there was just this big thing, you know. And um, I, I, again, internalized a lot of shame about the way I was thinking about myself and, and about who I was. I loved to dance as a kid. I was always dancing around. Um, I would dance in the supermarket. I would um, just dance everywhere. We, back when PE was in schools, um, when the kids were doing free play, I um, was off dancing to music that was always in my head, and I was always sort of, um, you know, had characters that I was playing and making up. And so, so I begged from five years old to eight years old to um, be in dance classes. And and my mom finally found a program for me. And I, I believe that that saved my life. I, I, um, I did try to commit suicide once um, when I was about 11 years old, um, unsuccessfully. But I, I didn't have um, school. My mom's a teacher and, 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 and education and reading and um, something that I loved and that was good at. Um, I don't think I would have survived. I didn't feel safe at all as a kid. And I've had moments like that as an adult, but the difference with me as an adult is that I have, have support now. I have people in my life who um, support and validate me as who I am. As a kid, when kids were saying all these awful things about me, I thought that that was the truth of who I was. And as an adult now, I find myself wanting to go back into, oh, if people are saying this about me, it must be true. But then I'm like, well, no. I have people around me who are supportive and who are amazing, who love me, who are like, no. What these people are saying about you is not who you are. And I know that that's not who I am. This past Christmas, my mom and I, were just, we were just talking and we hadn't talked about the bullying um, stuff, but you know, she's my mom's very aware of what's been going on in the news with all the bullying stories. And she, um, it just sort of came up, and she just said, um, just out of nowhere, she just said, "I'm sorry, um, I didn't know how to, um, I didn't know what to do. I'm sorry that I didn't um, 
know how to deal with it. She she had her way, and she thought that was the way, and um, it didn't work. She loves me, you know. She supports me, and she's proud of me, and um, that's all I ever really wanted um, as a kid is to have my mom be proud of me. Um, that's all I wanted, and um, she is. So um, that's kind of amazing. Freedom and blood. I make my mark and fight for tomorrow. Finally, I've got some there. Something I can raise my voice for. Fire. Tell them who you really want. Fire. Well, you'll get yours and I'll get mine. Proud. I'm proud to be. Proud to see. They say proud. Proud to be. I'm proud to be me. They say tell me. Oh, you got to keep me. This week's edition of Know Your Rights addresses gender nonconforming people in the workplace. Though this piece specifically speaks to transgender and gender nonconforming persons, it is illegal to discriminate in employment based on sexual preference or sexual identity. Federal courts and the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commissions, or the EEOC, which enforces federal job discrimination laws, has concluded that discrimination because a person is transgender or gender nonconforming constitutes illegal sex discrimination. Many states and localities also expressly prohibit job discrimination based on gender identity and or expression. The following outlines rights and procedures transgender employees have to address discrimination. What laws protect employees? Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits sex discrimination in employment. Title VII applies to any employer with at least 15 employees. You can file a complaint concerning workplaces that are hostile to LGBTQ employees at any EEOC office. Go to eeoc.gov and click File a Charge of Employment Discrimination link under How To on the right-hand side of the homepage. State and local laws in many jurisdictions also explicitly prohibit discrimination based on gender identity or expression. As of May 1st, 2012, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Washington, D.C., Hawaii, Illinois, Iowa, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, New Mexico, Nevada, Oregon, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington State, as well as more than 150 cities and counties, have such explicit laws. State or local government employees are also protected by state constitutions and laws prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex. Additionally, executive orders in Delaware, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Maryland, Michigan, New York, and Pennsylvania explicitly prohibit gender identity discrimination in state employment. Federal civilian employees have additional protections and different procedures for complaints. For more information on this process and your rights, please visit the U.S. Office of Personnel Management or OPM.gov and search Transgender Diversity and Inclusion. What are your employment rights? You have the right not to be fired, refused a job, or promotion because you are transgender. This is true even if your state and locality have not passed laws explicitly prohibiting gender identity discrimination. 
You have the right to be treated with respect and not to be harassed. Sex-based harassment is unlawful when it is severe or pervasive and an employer does not take steps to stop it. Jokes or derogatory comments about transgender people, repeated and intentional use of the wrong name or pronouns, and intrusive, disrespectful personal questions may constitute harassment and supervisors should take steps to stop it. You have the right to safe and adequate access to restrooms and other facilities. Federal regulations require employers to make adequate facilities available as freely as possible to all employees. Under no circumstances may an employer require to use the restroom facilities that are unsanitary, unsafe, or located in an unreasonable distance from your workstation. And denial of access to restrooms that are consistent with an employee's gender identity, failure to do so may constitute discrimination. What can you do about employment discrimination? The primary reason to assert your rights is to make an ongoing instance of discrimination or harassment stop. Though there are many avenues one can take, such as filing a lawsuit or filing a complaint with the EEOC, the first step is to file a complaint with your employer. Even when the discrimination or harassment is not ongoing, it is still important to file a complaint, even after the fact, as you will be on record should a pattern develop later. It may also prevent the same thing from happening to others as employers have been known to change their policies once a complaint is received. Filing a complaint may even empower the employer to discipline or fire employee or employees responsible for the discrimination. However, it is important to be realistic and to weigh your options. Complaint processes can take a long time, even years, and in some cases may require legal assistance, which can be expensive. It may also be difficult to prove a person acted a certain way towards you because of your transgender identity and not some other cause. Legal protections for transgender people are generally new and still being established, and the law may change quickly. Keep in mind that monetary remedies from a discrimination complaint are quite rare. If for some reason you feel you cannot file a complaint with your employer or you have filed a complaint that your employer appears to be unresponsive to, you may file a charge of sex discrimination with the EEOC. A charge of discrimination must be filed with the EEOC or an equivalent state agency before an employee may bring a lawsuit. Most charges are resolved without going to court. Generally, a charge must be filed within 180 days of discriminatory or harassing action, although there are some exceptions. Note, Federal employees usually need to file a complaint within 45 days of a discriminatory or harassing action. It is recommended to file a charge in person at a regional EEOC field office. But if you cannot, a charge may be filed in the form of a letter. Charges cannot be filed online or by phone. However, the EEOC maintains an info hotline at 1-800-669-4000 and has many online resources such as an assessment tool to help individuals de determine how and where to file. For details on filing charges, you can find instructions on the EEOC's website eeoc.gov slash employees slash howtofile.cfm The law also protects individuals against any threats or retaliation by an employer for participating in the complaint process. The EEOC will typically ask you and your employer to take part in the agency's mediation program. And if the case is not sent to mediation or mediation doesn't resolve the case, the EEOC will investigate the charge. 
Following an investigation, the agency will either find a violation of the law and try to reach a settlement between you and your employer or will issue a, quote, right to sue letter permitting you to file a lawsuit in federal court. Filing a lawsuit. Unless you have a lawyer representing you, it's not advisable to ask for a right to sue letter immediately because you must file a lawsuit within 90 days from the day you've received the EEOC's right to sue letter. A lawsuit based on state or local law does not require you to go through the EEOC process first, although you may need to go to a state agency charged with enforcing the law first. Deadlines are very important, so if you feel you may ultimately need to sue, it's recommended that you begin looking for a lawyer early on in the process. The Department of Justice maintains a list of agencies that deal with civil rights. To reach the Civil Rights Division, go to justice.gov slash CRT. Many agencies have their own unique filing process, so contacting an agency or an office in your area is the best way to learn more about who to contact and how to successfully navigate the complaint process. If you are a union member, please see your union process. This information was compiled by the National Center for Transgender Equality. Please visit them at transequality.org. Please visit our Facebook and Tumblr for tips to help you through the complaint process. There are some really good and important tips there, such as the importance of keeping a log and a calendar to help you keep track of filing deadlines. It is important not to ever miss a deadline, since one missed deadline can mean your entire case could be dismissed. I'm a 24-year-old trans guy living in a small town on the East Coast. I just got off the phone with my insurance company because I was calling to find out a call I put off for a long time if gender reassignment surgery was covered under my plan. When I looked online, it said that to determine if you can have gender reassignment surgery you have to meet certain criteria to make it medically necessary, all of which I meet, but that it depends on the state you live in. I called to find out, and they informed me that the state I live in does not require them to cover gender assignment surgery. I'm a student. I don't have a lot of money. Uh, surgery costs for top surgeries I'm looking into, it costs from around $8,000 to $11,000. I just, I can't stand in front of a mirror without my clothes on, without my world crumbling around me. It constantly, I mean, sex is hardly an option because if if my binder slips or if they want me, my partner wants me to take my clothes off, so that's it, 
I can't, I can't even continue going on. I pass all the time now, so not having a surgery. It's like when I come home to take off my clothes at night, I disappear. I, I guess I'm just calling because I, I, w- I was wondering if you know of anything that can, like grants or or some way to get money to help do this. I don't, you know, I feel like it's lasting forever, and in the meantime, I'm stuck in a limbo. And, and maybe talk about how, in any way, it's right to have something be medically necessary in one state but not another. Joining us by phone uh, from New York City, Drew Leviser. He is the co-founder of the Jim Collins Foundation, a nonprofit that raises money to fund gender-confirming surgeries for trans folks. He's also the director of the Transgender Rights Project for Lambda Legal, the oldest and largest LGBT legal organization in the country. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us today, Drew. Yeah, happy to be here. So quickly to answer a question that the, the caller brings up right at the end, how can something be declared medically necessary in one state and somehow not be medically necessary in another state? Well, it boils down to one word, discrimination. Um, this issue uh, is being litigated right now in the courts, and um, basically the medical community has consensus for many years that they understand that these types of procedures for gender transition can be medically necessary. It depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, this caller you know, would have to go to his provider and then figure out if this is actually something that is medically necessary for him. There's no set formula for gender transition, as you know. Um, But if it's medically necessary, it's medically necessary, and it should be covered. Some people have argued, and I'm just devil's advocating here, this is not my point of view, that these aren't medically necessary surgeries. They've been called uh, gender confirmation surgeries. That's the new term for gender-confirming surgeries, not sex reassignment surgeries or SRS, which is what it used to be called. That these are cosmetic procedures because, you know, this uh, trans man living with breasts isn't in any medical danger. He isn't going to die from breasts. And so these are cosmetic procedures are elective and not necessary. What's the response to that argument? And that is the age-old uh, misconception around transgender health care. And many, many years now, um, doctors have had consensus around this, that it can be medically necessary. And just to prove this, this has been litigated in the courts. Um, for example, in the prison context, you might have seen that in the, in the press a lot, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, it's a cruel and unusual punishment standard when you're behind bars. And the courts have found that this can be medically necessary for people in prison, um, it's, you know, there's consensus around this and there's no question. The idea that this is cosmetic or elective is far gone. And that is why you're seeing more and more cases and insurance companies are losing their grip on this type of discrimination, state by state, as this caller points out. Okay, so what, when this caller describes taking off his bindings and... Yeah, and looking at his own body and not being able to get undressed in front of a sex partner, is that where it becomes medically necessary when it's such a such a mental torment to to, to not have your body in align with your gender identity? Yeah, I mean, I think the the definition that's in, you know, the DSM as a diagnosis, and that's how our insurance is all understood, but the diagnosis is around the distress that one feels, like the caller explained so well, um, when his body does not match his internal sense of being a man. Um, and that kind of distress can be ranged for certain people. Um, for some people, it can be incredibly, you know, despairing. And, like, um, this guy really talks about that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we 
started the Jim Collins Foundation to draw attention to this issue. For you know, we saw that there's so much discrimination people don't understand. If you're not trans yourself or have a loved one who explains to you what that feels like, you really don't have an idea about how this could be so life saving. I mean the forty one percent suicide rate in the trans community is connected to this kind of discrimination. Not being able to have the health care that you need to live your life can be debilitating. We have over, you know, like 300 applications, you know, last round, um, and people are telling us that, you know, they're just holding on by a thread. And you can imagine if you, your body did not match who you feel that you are. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very distressing experience. So tell us about, directly address the caller, what, what, what services are out there for him? He's, should he be suing his health care provider or his insurance company? Is there that kind of support out there? Or are there your yeah. organization that he can approach? Are there other organizations? I've, there's been a story recently, mm-hmm. um, I believe it was on Huffington Post, about so many trans people uh, going online and doing online fundraising campaigns, Indiegogos and, uh, yeah. and others, to raise the money that they need for their gender reassignment surgeries. So lay yeah. out for the caller what, what, what his options might be. Sure. Well, um, first of all, if he has insurance, which most trans people don't, um, most trans people are poor, but um, if he does have insurance, it would be worthwhile for him to actually look at his plan to see if he has an exclusion in there. Um, it says, you know, he said that he did find that exclusion, and therefore he should try to appeal it. Um, we have a transgender toolkit at Lambda Legal um, that directly discusses what to do to answer your question um, if you have an exclusion in the plan. Um, the toolkit series you can find at landalegal.org. Um, and so he should appeal. He should contact Land Legal and other organizations who are challenging this. Um, we challenged this in Oregon, and the state of Oregon dropped their exclusion because we sued on behalf of the trans guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we're looking for more cases like that. But he can also, like you said, um, you know, in the meantime, look to other resources. Unfortunately, um, when we founded the Jim Collins Foundation, we knew we were not going to be able to raise by individual donations enough money to, you know, serve all the people who need this kind of life-saving care. But we wanted to start somewhere, um, founded by two transgender men, myself and Tony Ferriolo. And, um, you know, in the last five years, we have changed five people's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, You can go on our website, jimcollinsfoundation.org, to read about their lives, you know, the people who have had surgery. Um, But, you know, fundraising is tough on this issue. As you pointed out, there's a lack of understanding around that. Um, So some people have taken into their own hands and created their own online campaigns, but not everybody has access to the Internet, knows how to use that, knows how to raise money. Mm-hmm. So it's often the most privileged in our community that end up becoming successful doing that, which is great, but what about everybody else? Right. So it really has to be a national movement for Medicaid to lift the exclusion and insurance companies to get on board. Get with the times, people. So you're, you're the first thing that you think the, the caller should do is contact Lambda Legal about what his rights may be and to appeal this decision by his health care provider. Yeah, and I would say check out our toolkit on the issue. Okay, and also check out jimcollinsfoundation.org if you want to learn more about this issue. Drew Leviser, co-founder of the Jim Collins Foundation, a nonprofit that raises money to fund gender-confirming surgeries. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Thanks, Dan. Keep up the great work.
Kara writes, uh, here to tell you about a recent issue I had with my health insurance company and them not accommodating trans and gender nonconforming members. For anyone in your audience that doesn't know, I'm assigned male at birth, genderqueer, trans femme. I prefer to identify as genderqueer, gender neutral, but in such a binary culture, I'm forced to present as one or the other, so I choose female. Earlier this week, I went to a urologist my general physician referred me to. While I'm sure many people are uncomfortable about having doctors examine their genitalia, I have the added bonus of my genitals not conforming to my gender expression. Fortunately, the nurses and doctor were very pleasant to me and seemed to be at least aware, if not knowledgeable, about trans people. They avoided using pronouns, and the doctor even asked about gender confirmation surgery. He referred to it as sex reassignment, but uh, slightly outdated knowledge is better than no knowledge, I think. After scheduling a minor procedure for my genitalia, I went back to work. A few hours later, I received a call from the urologist's office. The receptionist or nurse told me that my insurance provider wasn't processing payment for the procedure because the procedure is for men, quote-unquote, and my insurance has me listed as female. She then said, quote, and we know, we both know that isn't correct. Wow. Wow. In order for my insurance to pay for this procedure, I needed to, quote, fix my gender listed in my health insurance information. I then called my insurance provider and told them I needed to switch my gender to male. The representative I talked to told me I had been listed as old name and male a few months ago, and then in December it was updated to Kara and female. She said in order to, quote, fix this mistake, I would need to go to the human resources department at the university I work at and have them change it. This required me to talk to one of the office administrators in my department to send in changes to the HR. To HR, the office administrator said to let her know when to when to change back, but I don't know when it would be safe to do that. My day had not been going well beforehand, but having my identity called quote a mistake over and over was too much, and I cried back in my office for about ten minutes after calling my insurance company. I spent several months, a few hundred dollars and dozens of hours to get my name and gender changed at my work. Now, most of that work is completely wasted, and I don't know when I will be able to fix it. It also worries me that it might fuck up something else, because the only reason my HR changed my gender was because I got my Social Security info changed. What other problems will arise from these two things not matching? This could have been avoided if genitalia equals sex and gender was not as entrenched in our culture as it is. Or maybe if we had nationalized health care, because really it would not matter how I identify. Anyways, I hope my uplifting story of shitty health insurance bureaucracy has shown yet another way of how our society doesn't accommodate trans and gender nonconforming people. Keep up the great work on the podcast and all the articles you write. Wow. Wow, that is... Oh, and I had just talked with Kara, and Kara was like, I've been lucky enough to not have any super negative experiences. And I mean, uh, it's just, I've had like negative uh, experiences just jet, like just trying to get insurance companies to pay for something. And it like, even thinking about it makes me feel complete panic and despair. And for it to be something like this, uh, where your very identity is in question, your identity is called a mistake. I mean, I just cannot imagine how that must feel. I am so sorry that that happened.
So this case is not simple. It's, uh, I will say that what you need to know is that this case will likely define the transition status of trans people, certainly in Texas, and very, very possibly all of America. This means that your transition status may very well rest on the outcome of this case. That's why it's important. And that's why I've been following it for the last several years. In fact, here's some uh, stuff that I put out oh, maybe about four years ago now um, trying to educate people about this particular case. Hello YouTube, this is Kristen, and today I wanted to talk to you about the Nikki Aragus case and what that means for the trans community. If Nikki loses, all Texas transitioned TG people will be legally detransitioned. So, why is that? Okay. Some of you might ask. Well, you remember Attorney General Greg Abbott refused to rule on whether or not transgender people who have transitioned or who are in the process of transitioning were legally male or female. So instead of ruling on that, he kicked it down to the Wharton County judge who is hearing Nikki Aragusa's case. The meat and potatoes of that case is not about benefits. The legal question in that case is, is Nikki a man or is Nikki a woman? So now it's up to Judge Randy Clapp to decide whether or not transitioned people are in fact the gender they transition into or not. Nikki loses. You lose your legal status. It doesn't matter what your doctor says. It doesn't matter what your chromosomes say. It doesn't matter whether or not you're intersex. It doesn't matter if you have your, if your birth certificate says you're female when you're male to female. It doesn't matter. What will matter is that a small town judge has said that you're legally male if you're male to female. And that if you're female to male, well, you're legally a woman for the rest of eternity. And some of you who are not living in Texas might think, well, what the hell does that mean for me? It doesn't affect me. See, unfortunately, case law has no boundaries in states. That means the next time a trans case comes up in your state, this case law can be used as precedent and see, it's even more nuanced than that. This whole thing started because an intersex person wanted to get married in El Paso. Well, the uh, county clerk didn't know whether or not to issue them a valid marriage certificate because they didn't know what sex this person was. Well, they uh, contacted Attorney General Greg Abbott, the guy who's running as the Republican governor right now, they wanted to know how to handle this case. Well, there was a case going on in Wharton, Texas, which is Nikki Aragus. Her husband died in the line of duty. He was a firefighter. And um, 
Well, the state was going to pay her widow's benefits. Well, the ex-wife was having none of that. She wanted to control whatever benefits came would would have gone to Nikki, and so she sued to have the marriage annulled, to have the marriage voided, on the grounds that Nikki Aragus, yes, she was post-op, but she was still a man because of this fucked-up case called Littleton v. Prang. Littleton v. Prang holds. I am not kidding. I am not kidding. That at the moment of birth, God comes down and bestows one of two sexes to Texas children, and that the obstetrician or whoever is doing the delivery divines God's will and writes on a, a certificate of live birth, otherwise known as a birth certificate. What God's will was? Was it that this person would be male or female, and that once they write that on that medical document, it can never, ever, ever be changed, no matter what, no matter what medical experts come along later. It doesn't matter. This is the only medical opinion. That is written in stone and is infallible. Seriously, that's the Littleton v. Prang decision. Well, so this small town Republican judge agreed <laughs> with that uh, that uh, that belief, and he voided Nikki's marriage. Well, she of course appealed to the thirteenth. District Court of Appeals here in Texas, and、uh, this is a mixed court of Republicans and Democrats. And guess what? This time, they found in favor of Nikki. You see, here in Texas, there's this little piece of legislation that says that if you have had a quote sex change, you may be issued a valid mar- marriage certificate. The other side argued that、um, uh, a sex change does not mean sex change. Seriously, that's what they they argued. They also argued that、um, you know God wrote the Bible, and the Bible said X, Y, and Z, and blah blah blah. That was their legal case. And I know you think I'm joking. I know you think that I'm engaging in hyperbole here. That their case was actually. You know the Bible. Well, here is、uh, the other side arguing before the Thirteenth、uh, District Court of Appeals. This is their legal argument. This is them talking to the judges about why Nikki is a man、uh, and not a woman. Here you go. This is their devastating legal case. Now, Your Honor, I I don't mean to be flippant with this, but to me that would be somewhat like an expert coming in and saying this table is a chair, and that and that is my expert opinion. And we have an ability to either say that that makes sense or that does not make sense. That is credible evidence or that is not credible evidence. You know, Genesis one twenty seven and Matthew nineteen four. 
when they talk about God created him male and female, what we are introducing today is the idea, this is what their expert says, it's what they cite in their brief. They say, no, Nikki Aragoose was neither male nor female. She was neither completely male nor completely female. They are introducing, I don't know what this would be, but it would be something that is unprecedented in the history of Texas. Uh, it's something that we've never recognized before. Let me ask you this. Again, this is, it comes to us in the context of a summary judgment. Don't you have the burden of proof? Don't you have to come forward with evidence to disprove that she is, is not a man, but rather a, I mean, she's not a, a woman, but rather a man? You see what I mean? Where, who has the burden of proof? You do. You are the one that's moving for us to, to set aside uh, you know, the, uh, the, her identity as a woman. And uh, this mixed court, of course, didn't buy it. And they recently returned a verdict in favor of Nikki Ergus, saying that a trans woman, after she transitions, is in fact a woman. She is a woman. That is the thing this case is all about. And therefore, she can enter into a valid Texas marriage. The reason why it's important for everyone else is that the other side, the right-wing side that's arguing Bible and blah, blah, they are definitely going to appeal this 13th District Court of Appeals ruling. That means that it's probably going to the Texas Supreme Court And because we have a Texas Supreme Court ruled by ideologues, right-wing ideologues, we will more than likely lose. The Texas Supreme Court will probably say that no, 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 the 13th District Court of Appeals was wrong, and we have to use a biblical interpretation of what is a man and what is a woman, and that God comes down out of the clouds and bestows a sex on each Texas child. That will most certainly be appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States. And that's where it becomes not only Texas's issue, it becomes everyone else's issue too. For a couple of reasons. Let's say that the Supreme Court doesn't hear the case. That leaves this case law, Texas Supreme Court case law, hanging out there, and it will absolutely be used by the right wing to attack trans rights throughout the nation. Or the Texas, the American Supreme Court hears the case and then rules whether or not trans people who transition are their transitioned sex. This case is huge and has implications that are far-reaching. So, what's important to know is that the 13th District Court of Appeals ruled that Littleton v. Prang is dead. That's a big thing. The, The case law has been legislatively overturned. That's a big deal. So here's Nikki when I talked to her about all of this um, just a few days ago. You've come a long way. Right. In the last 
few years. Specifically in the last year. <laughs> what did you feel like whenever you got the news? I didn't think it was real. I was in shock, and I really started crying with just relief, you know, relief. It felt... Well, you know, just yesterday, I sent my lawyers an email, and I said, I said, what, what is, you know, how long are we going to have to wait for a ruling? Um, so I said, I'm ready to have a good old-fashioned, you know, protest to find out, when, you know, to force a ruling. And so I expected the email that I opened this morning to be another calm down, we have to wait, be patient. Right. And it wasn't that at all. It said we won. We won on every legal argument. We won. So to be clear, this was a three-panel judge. This was Republicans and Democrats. These these were the the judges were men and women. Uh, you know, Texas judges Re- reviewing judges Judge Claps. Um, legal logic and right. rejected it all. Right. Rejected all of the assertions made by uh, the the other side concerning you. Um, so what is your sense about what happens next? Well, you know, we're, we're weighing all of the options. We're really analyzing the, um, the ruling at this point. My legal team and I will be meeting in the next few days and discussing our strategy. But, you know, from what I, from all accounts, the, the judge's um, ruling was very um, thorough. But we're analyzing it for um, technical mistakes and, um, and really, you know, uh, going to assert the ruling um, to the best of our ability and to the benefit of transgender mm-hmm. Texans. Right. So and what it does do is it strikes down, effectively strikes down Littleton. Right. And no no one else will have to go through what Christy <laughs> Lee and I have had to go through. Now, um, it really, it really uh, asserted that transgender Texans have a right to be married in Texas. Mm-hmm. That's right. The judges found that you are A, female, and B, that your marriage was in fact valid. Right, right. I asked her about a particularly painful part of her story. You see, when she came out, her husband's family made the claim to the press that her husband didn't know that she was trans. Now, they lived together months before uh, she, uh, they married, um, and she was preoperative at the time. However, people bought the story. They really, really believed that this fallen American hero was deceived. No way could one of our heroes truly love a trans woman. Yeah, that was the most painful part of this whole thing, was for people to believe that my husband didn't fall in love with me genuinely. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the most asinine and absurd part of this and I think that that's the that is the dialogue that I hope this case will change forever right. you know that um, transsexuals aren't inherently deceptive and don't have to trip to be loved how sweet it is to be loved by you I need 
understand my ups and downs. There you were, with sweet love and devotion, deeply touching my emotion. I want to stop. Thank you, baby. I want to stop. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Justice for Jane. It's pretty rare when mid-production good news breaks. It's especially rare when that good news affects a transgender youth being wronged by the prison industrial complex. So today's segment is part update and part, yeah, but because there's still so much work to be done. Jane Doe is a 16-year-old trans girl. She's been in the care of the Connecticut Department of Children and Families since the age of five. Born into an abusive home, she survived 11 years in the system before being placed in an adult incarceration facility. One month into her stay, mostly in solitary and entirely without charges, she reached out to Governor Malloy and the public for help. She wrote, quote, I have been sitting in this prison for a month now, and there is no plan to get me out. I am suffering in here. I'm having trouble sleeping, and I'm not eating much. I cry in bed every night. I can't be myself in this place. I feel forgotten and thrown away. DCF is supposed to be helping me, right? If this is helping me, then I'm all set with being helped. I would be a lot better off being on my own. It seems like you're my last chance to get out of here. Don't forget about me. I can't take another month of this." Two months into her unjust incarceration, a Change.org petition gathered more than 18,000 signatures and demonstrations were happening to demand her transfer to a youth facility and eventual release. Well, finally on June 24th, after 78 days without charge, Jane Doe was transferred to a youth facility where she awaits promises to be released upon being matched with a suitable foster family. This is amazing news, long overdue, and just the beginning. Activist Al Riccio, who helped organize rallies for Jane Doe, talked to Parker Malloy at TheAdvocate.com about what makes Jane Doe's case. Quote, We also need to keep bringing attention to the fact that Jane would not be imprisoned if not for her status as a trans woman and a person of color. Plenty of cisgender girls under DCF care assault DCF workers and, quote, act out, but none of them are imprisoned without criminal charges and threaten to be sent to a male prison. It's impossible to imagine the state of Connecticut doing this to a white cisgender 16-year-old, unquote. Emails of encouragement to justiceforjanedoe at gmail.com are still requested. Please also ensure promises are kept through the continued public pressure on Governor Malloy by calling 860-556-4840 and tweeting to at Governor Malloy office and on the DCF commissioner by calling 860-550-6300 and tweeting to at CTDCF. Use the hashtag justice for, that's all spelled out, justice for Jane, and demand that the law which made it possible to imprison her unjustly be repealed. Jane Doe is not a solitary case. As the Justice for Jane Twitter handle reminded people the day of her transfer, the struggle isn't over, and while the Middletown facility is an improvement over prison, it is still a locked unit, and there are many John and Jane Doe's suffering in the Department of Children and Family system, as well as in prison. If justice denied anywhere is justice denied everywhere, then it is all of our duties to see the system changed, even if we have to do it case by case and law by law. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all 
and some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration, the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? What's so bad about being a man, my wife asks. There's a blue plastic plate in one hand, a dish towel in another. Her makeup is off, her glasses are on. We're both in blue jeans and sneakers. There's so little difference between us. Surely she can see through my dilapidated male facade to the soul whose suffering is causing hers. Any minute now, I'm suddenly sure of it, she'll realize without having to be told what's so bad about being a man. A body is there, but it's not yours. A voice is coming out of your throat, but you don't recognize it. The mirror contains another person's face. When your children wrap their arms around you, they seem to be hugging someone else. Every morning you wake up shocked to find that parts of you have disappeared, that you're smothered in flesh you can't recognize as yours, that you have lost the body you never had. This isn't me, you say to yourself. This isn't me, you say to anyone you trust. Of course it isn't. There is no me, no body that fits the map, no identity that fits your sense of self, no way to orient yourself in a world in which you exist only as a hysterical rejection of what to everyone around you is the simple, obvious fact of your gender. You're a man, and what's so bad about that? Jay Layden lived for 40 years as a man, but had become exhausted with the pretense. In 2006, the husband and father of three began a journey to change gender and become Joy Layden. Transitioning from male to female meant profound upheaval to her relationship with her family and also with her work and faith. Joy Layden holds the David and Ruth Gottesman Chair in English at Yeshiva University, an Orthodox Jewish university in New York City. She's also the author of Through the Door of Life, a Jewish journey between genders, as well as many books of poetry, and she joins us from Amherst, Massachusetts. Hello. Hello. When did you write that? Actually, the first draft was probably not long after that scene took place in the kitchen. I started writing what ended up becoming the memoir at the prompting of my therapist, who I think wanted to give me something to do other than killing myself, but also realized that writing and words were my strongest assets. They were the parts of me that were most fully grown in. And she believed rightly that if I could write about the experience of being trans and about gender transition, that that would help me through it. So you wrote that when you were officially J. That's right. I didn't have uh, any other name at that point. Does that particular writer exist today, or is Joy a different writer? That's a wonderful and difficult question. Writing was always my way of feeling that I was truly alive, and it seemed to me that when I was writing, I was in a space outside bodies and gender, that I had escaped all of that. And in some way, the the writing that happens in the memoir is the voice, and I thought of it at that at the time, that it was the voice of my future. So in that sense, I would say... Yes, it's the um, I am the same writer who wrote that, and in other ways, I feel that I've grown quite a bit since uh, since living as myself. 
Hmm. You write, the mirror contains another person's face. How would you feel, what would you think when you looked in the mirror back then and saw Jay? I never remembered what I was supposed to look like. It was always a bit of a surprise, and I just tried not to look. It never felt like I was looking at me. The, the face that I saw in the mirror didn't correspond to the person that I felt myself to be. Not that there was another face. I had no idea what a true face would be. Was that a real conscious thing all the time, or did it, would it hit you at various times differently? It was a conscious thing all the time, and there were times when it was acutely painful and disorienting and, and difficult, but it, it was con- constant. And when you look in the mirror today and you see joy, who do you see? It's still an amazing thing. I used to say a prayer of gratitude every time I saw myself in a mirror, and, and it was still me. Uh, it seemed to me that I was always in danger of vanishing. And at this point, I feel, I feel a surge of relief. And I think that the longer that I live as myself, the more my relation to my face in the mirror is more like that of people who aren't trans. You know, there are days when I'm struck by, my, by how old I look and how tired and, you know, sometimes how ugly. And there are other times when I think, oh, you know, I like that. <laughs> no, this is a person that I um, not only am, but in some way it matches the person that I that I wished I were. That's extraordinary well, that you can look at yourself now and see yourself. Yes. What was happening in your life when you made the choice to transition? Well, the choice to transition it was a choice between continuing to live or killing myself. There really wasn't any other choice. Um, that sense of um, crisis was prompted by what was really the, the like the relationship between my psyche and my soma kind of fell apart. So I spent most of my life mostly dissociated. I felt that I was, you know, in a body that wasn't mine, and that's very disturbing. It's, you know, like when you wake up in the middle of the night and your arm has gone numb. So mostly I tried not to feel my body, and I had very little perception of pain, very little perception of pleasure. I don't remember very much of my life as a man because I didn't have the uh, sensations that create vivid memories. And yet you were married with children. Yes, I did have emotions. You know, I loved my wife, now ex-wife. I loved my children. What I wasn't sure of was whether there was a me that could be loved in return. It seemed to me that I was kind of a, well, Casper the Friendly Ghost. I don't know if you have that cartoon here, but I I grew up on it. I did too, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wanted to play with the other children, but (laughs) I wasn't really there. Mm. And so... um, Uh, How did your family react to what you did? The transition process, well, just to back up and answer your first question, dissociation became increasingly difficult to maintain, those moments of, uh, those periods of crisis when I was acutely uncomfortable with living as a man grew longer and it was harder and harder to maintain a male identity. And then finally I was sick all the time. I couldn't hold food in and I couldn't sleep and um, really most of what I thought about was either gender transition or suicide. And suicide struck me as the um, preferable option 
because I couldn't bear the idea of disrupting my family. I couldn't bear the idea of what I knew would happen, which is that uh, my marriage would end. Um, and I knew that because I had told my my wife, then girlfriend, um, that I was transsexual when we were sophomores in college. We met as freshmen. There was very little information about what that meant at the time and very little language. There was no internet. It was hard for her. It's always hard to understand something like that that's uh, an experience so at odds with what most people feel. But she said something that, that held true for our lives together. She said that she would accept the way that I felt about myself, what I would now call my gender identity. She would accept that I had a female gender identity, though she didn't understand what that meant, as long as I continued to live as a man. She couldn't be with somebody who was not presenting as a heterosexual man. And to me, this was a... Um, a pretty wonderful bargain because it was the first time in my life that I was loved by somebody who knew that I was trans. And I agreed to that bargain as long as I could. So when I knew that I, I was too sick to continue living as a man, I knew that if I stopped living as a man, if I began gender transition, then I would, I would lose my uh, wife, I would lose my marriage, I would lose my home. And uh, those things seemed unbearable to me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. We'll be getting back to those in the next episode. And if you would like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today I, I want to give my last update on the fundraiser before it ends. This is the last episode before the end of the month, and the fundraiser ends at the end of the month. And then I'm going to tell a story that is long, long overdue. So stick around for that. Uh, but first, I just want to get a, a bunch of people thanked uh, be- before the fundraiser ends. These are people who have already donated. So huge, huge thanks to Sarah from Montclair, New Jersey, Harry from Bedford, Massachusetts, Paul from Seattle, Washington, Charlotte from, I love the foreign addresses, I get excited, Geneva, Switzerland, Mara from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Kathleen from Buffalo, Wyoming, John from Brighton, uh, Colorado, Chris from a military address. I hardly understand how to read, but I think uh, they are in Europe. Chris and Emery Hancock from McDonough, Georgia. That's a father-son duo. They've been listening to the show forever. I met them in D.C. after the rally to uh, restore sanity and or fear. Uh, so love hearing from them. Darren from Sewanee, Georgia. Dave from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Will from Washington, Missouri. Aaron from Boozman, Montana. Joseph from Katona, New York. Donna from also, I think, a European military address. David from Lunenburg, Massachusetts, Inobi from Roseburg, Oregon. I hope I pronounced that right. David from Brooklyn, New York. Geraldine from Houston, Texas. John from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Chris from Seattle, Washington. Mark from Hunimi, California. There's so many of these, you get the sense that the fundraisers are going well, right? Uh, Timothy from Rothschild, uh, Wisconsin. Barry from Gladstone, uh, Missouri. Marcella from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Donald from Oak Park, Illinois. Oren from Seattle, 
Alex from Houston, Matthew from Bloomfield, New Jersey, Christian from Latham, New York, Matt from uh, Canada, Al- uh, Edmund, uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, uh, let's see, uh, Catherine from Sudbury, Massachusetts, Angela from Beaverton, Oregon, Aaron from Seattle, Carl from Vernon Hills, Illinois, Jessica from Wendell, North Carolina, Nikki from Temple City, Still plenty to go. Uh, Eileen from East Haddam, Connecticut. Tim from uh, a city in the Netherlands. I'm going to go with Wisp, Wesp uh, in the Netherlands. I love it. I, I love when I can't pronounce the, the city names from foreign countries. Uh, Kelly from Rockland, California. Mark from Dunedin, New Zealand. Uh, I, I'm Yeah, I, I can't describe how excited I get that I have listeners in New Zealand donating. Uh, Chef, uh, let's see, Daniel from Sheffield Lake, Ohio, Jay from New York, New York, Joe from Seattle, Washington, one of my esteemed volunteers who helps make the show possible, Michelle from Missoula, Montana, Tony from Brooklyn, New York, Melvin from uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Nancy from Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, Jeff from Kew Gardens, New York, John from San Francisco, Chris from Lulworth, United Kingdom, Alex from Medford, Massachusetts, Lawn from Parkfields, Wisconsin, uh, Bob from San Francisco, and No from Prospect Heights, Illinois. And, and there's still more to come, but huge thanks to all of those people. There, there's so many. Like I said, get, it gives you the sense that things are going well, which is true. I, I set the goal originally at $15,000 and thought, God, I hope I get just somewhere close to that number. And, uh, and, you know, then I'll just see what I can do with, with what I, whatever I end up with. This is all, you know, as you probably know by now, to build a brand new uh, mobile application for the show that I think will be a huge boon to not just the show, but the entire progressive media community. And I've been counting down from, uh, from about when I was at the halfway point, $7,500. I was saying, look, like we only need 75 people to, to donate, you know, a hundred bucks each. And then it was 50 and now it's about 20. So we're within $2,000 of, of the goal is right down to the wire. You know, we're at the end of the month, but this is right where I want to be. Uh, if you've been waiting, like I said, uh, if you've been waiting to see like, Oh, I wonder if he's going to make it. And now you see, I'm going to make it and you want to help put it over the top. Now is the time to do it. Uh, so huge thanks to, to everyone who's been so supportive. I, I, I'm really, really surpassing my expectations with this fundraiser. So it gives me the sense that you guys think it's a good idea and want to support it. Now, related to this fundraiser, I have a story to tell that is long overdue because a few people have, have written in to ask, like they, they said, Hey, you know, the, this whole, the fundraiser, it's, it sounds exciting. The, the mobile app you want to build sounds great, but it, it, it sort of reminds me to ask, whatever happened to Our Blue Media? And uh, many of you will know what that is, and many of you will not. Our Blue Media is the last great idea I had, which has not come to fruition yet. So very, very reasonable question to ask. Like, say, hey, so you're you're asking for a bunch of money to build something, but the last time you did that, it didn't uh, didn't seem to pan out. So, so uh, you know, what's the update on that? So long overdue. Here is the story of what happened to Our Blue Media. First of all, what was it? It was going to be a central hub website that allowed lots and lots of different progressive media outlets 
to receive donations through a single hub site so that the end user, you know, you who wants to donate to a progressive media show or, or a whole bunch of different ones, you go to one website, check out, you know, go, go and pick all the different shows or blogs or whatever you want to support and then check out in one place, make one payment and have that money divided amongst uh, all the, the media outlets that you chose to support. Sounds like a good idea. I know. I loved it. Lots of other people loved it. I teamed up with shows you will be familiar with, The Young Turks and David Pakman, and we we got together and we're like, look, this is a good idea. It needs to exist, and probably no one else is going to come up with this idea. You know, like you sort of have to be on the inside, like we are. Like you have to run a show, like we do, to even have this idea as a business. So no one's going to come in and like fill this niche for us. So if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be us and. You know, and, and it should exist. So let's do it. So we got together. We, we teamed up. We set a goal very similarly. $15,000 would get us started to hire some developers and make this thing a reality. Uh, we, we reached out to all of our audiences. We ended up raising about $19,000. So hugely exciting. And then we got to work. You know, we, we, we all work. Uh, in separately, you know, but we would have these conference calls and we just started hashing out how are we going to do this. We hired developers and we got to work and we just started plugging away, designing this website. And to sort of cut to the end, we ended up building it up to about 90% done, uh, in, in sort of startup technical speak. It's, it's basically at the minimum viable product stage right now. So what happened, right? Well, there was a lot of bad timing that, that kicked in. Uh, first of all, uh, the Young Turks ended up having to pull out. They, they had to pull their support, not because they stopped supporting the project, but because they went through a huge financial turmoil when uh, this sort of inside baseball, but they had a show on current TV, that station owned by Al Gore. When Al Gore sold it to Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera didn't renew the Young Turks, so then they lost this huge income stream. So then they had to sort of contract for a while. So they're like, look, we, we love the project. We wish you the best, but we can't spend, uh, we can't afford to spend any staff time on it right now. So, so we lost their support at the same time. David Pakman was going through some turmoil of his own. Uh, you know, things are okay, but he was moving his show from the, the little town, uh, his hometown of, uh, Northampton, Massachusetts to, New York, New York, because he wants to become a big media mogul. So he's like, look, I got to go to New York. So he was moving his whole show and, you know, moving himself. And the, the whole thing was just, you know, took up a lot of his time. And so that pretty much just left me. And so, you know, I, I would have had a hard time doing it on my own anyways, but we had also run into some technical issues where, to, well, I'll skip the technical issues. We got it very, very close to being suitable, but not quite to the point where, you know, people were going to sign up for it right away. You know, the, the Young Turks weren't going to be able to use it themselves because the integration wasn't quite there yet. So it, it didn't integrate with their existing setup. And then the same thing happened to me. I upgraded my website and then all of a sudden, like, well, now our blue media doesn't integrate with my system and it doesn't integrate with the Young Turk system. And so we had this hurdle in front of us. And, and so that was, you know, like, oh, like I don't, we were trying to figure out what to do about that for a little while. And then what really took the wind out of our sails was, uh, the, the fact that patreon.com launched. 
And basically, Patreon is exactly like our blue media, except not just specifically for progressive media, but for the arts in general. But they're very, very similar. And so I actually got in touch with them, and I, I, I talked with one of the founders of, of Patreon and just sort of like talked out their whole business model and sort of told them about our experience of building our blue media and, and realized that they went through the exact same process we did. He was, uh, you know, a content creator himself. He, he was making YouTube music videos and struggling to make money and he needed a new way to do it. And Patreon is very similar to the, the concept of our blue media. And, and so he founded that. The huge difference between him and us though is that his roommate from college is a developer and and sort of one of those serial entrepreneurs. And so he got in touch with his old uh, college roommate and they built Patreon in about two months and and did a better job creating Patreon in two months than we had done building Our Blue Media in two years using outside developers that we had to pay a bunch of money to and instead of just having them be, you know, co-owners or whatever, right? So the big lesson, the, the takeaway from this is that if you ever want to found a big company where you have to build a website, uh, you really should uh, consider having a technical co-founder that can just, you know, you know, if you're not technical, you want to be the idea guy. That 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 was me and Dave and, and the Young Turks. Like we we were full of ideas. Actually executing those ideas, we needed help with. So you know, if you want to be the idea guy. And you, you need a technical person to, to bring it to life. That, that's been my experience. So, you know, basically our thought process the whole time was we don't really want to own this company. Like our passion is not building and maintaining a, a you know, a financial transactions company. We just really want it to exist and no one else is going to do it. So we should do it. And then Patreon came and they kind of did it. So now. Our Blue Media is basically, it's about 90% done. It's sort of at the minimum viable product stage, but we don't have the sort of personal capacity to do it ourselves to get it over this last hurdle. And we don't have a technical co-founder to be like the driving force behind actually creating the thing. So it's, it's on life support right now. It exists. It works. It, you know, it, for what it does, it, it works. I actually have a few people who were early testers of it who I got in touch with. And so I actually receive donations each month from our Blue Media contributors, uh, you know, listeners of the show who were already members before, but they switched over their memberships to our Blue Media. It, it, it works. It's there. And I mean, frankly, you know, if we had a, a technical co-founder who would want to take it to the next step, you know, I, I'd... I'd be in favor of, of continuing to see if we can make it a possibility, but that, that it's a much longer conversation to, to see how possible that is. So that's the story. So, so, you know, asking the question, Hey, you know, last time you asked for money, you know, it didn't seem to, to come to fruition. So what makes this one different? That, you know, it may not sound like a huge difference, but there's a huge stark difference between these two projects with our blue media. It was a side project that we were all working on and it was very difficult to sort of coordinate and have ongoing discussions over a long period of time and for us to all work together as a team and then uh, you, you know, get developers to sort of build our vision, our collective vision. Whereas this project with the app, it's just me and it's not a side project. It is my personal primary 
vision going forward. Like this is the next step of my show and how my show can work to promote all the other shows that I, I already promote. Like this, this is my project. And, uh, and so it is sort of on a fundamentally different level of building a project basically. So, I mean, it's a long story. It's complicated. It's not a happy ending, obviously. Uh, that's why this story is long overdue. I, I have not relished the idea of, of having to tell this story and, and sort of admit that things didn't go well and, and just say like, well, to everyone who supported our blue media originally, who we, we thank you from the bottom of our heart. Uh, your money went to build the project. You know, we did not, we didn't take any of the money ourselves. We didn't spend it, uh, you know, on, on ourselves. We spent it on developers building this project. It, it got to a very interesting point, And then we just could not push it over the finish line. Maybe, maybe it could be revived if you, if you know of someone or if you yourself want to take a stab at reviving it. I'm, I'm all ears. I I would be interested to see what we, we could make of it, but that's where it's at right now. And, and eventually I just had to sort of come to terms with the fact that I would be better off spending my energy and focus on something new rather than languishing in the frustration of the point that our blue media was at. And that's, that was sort of the, the first impetus of, okay, like I'm going to emotionally and logistically let that project go for now and start something new. And that was when I started thinking about sort of new marketing ideas for the show and, and progressive media in general, which eventually gave birth to the new mobile app app, uh, idea and fundraiser. And that brings us to today. So hopefully that, that makes sense. Hopefully if you donated to that project, you're not too frustrated with it. Uh, I mean, we're certainly frustrated with it. We, we commiserate with anyone who is disappointed and frustrated, but that's the story. You know, thing, things don't always work out. And like I said, it's on life support. It is not dead, but if it is going to be revived, we need help basically. And, um, and no, none of us were in a position to, put the focus in that was needed to find someone to help revive it. I wish I had more to say on that project. I wish I had a a happier ending for it, honestly, but it is what it is. And as as I said, if you have an idea of of how to help uh, revive it, please get in touch. I am all ears. As for the new project, the new smartphone app, I am super excited about it and very, very much, uh, confident in my own ability to make that come to fruition. Uh, you know, it, the idea of, of doing this project on my, on my own and working on it specifically as my primary goal for best of left, I am not the least bit hesitant about. So hopefully, hopefully that gives everyone confidence in you know, that this current fundraiser is not going to be, you know, it, it is not going to come to the same sad end as our blue media seems to have. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to those who support the show and have supported the show in all sorts of different ways, being members, making donations, donating to this fundraiser, donating to the Our Blue Media fundraiser. Thanks to everyone for, uh, you know, 
continuing to sort of believe in us <laughs> and and at, at least believe that we are doing our best with uh, with the, the support you give. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories